When it comes to communicating in Latin America, WhatsApp is king. People use it every day, all the time. But how many times do you sign a contract or have your ID checked via WhatsApp? That's a $3.5 billion potential addressable market, according to Trora. The Colombian startup offers digital authentication solutions tailored to businesses like background checks and identity validation. Back in April, their pitch landed them $15 million in a Series A round led by Propel Ventures and Excel at a $75 million valuation. And full disclosure here, I also invested, along with many other founders who see potential in the idea. Troar was founded in 2018, and it's now active in nine LATAM countries. One of its founders is Maite Muniz, who wears many hats and is responsible for managing product strategy, research and development, and customer relationships. She's an entrepreneur for pretty much her entire professional life and has learned on the job how to deal with some of Latin America's most challenging issues. Today, Maite and I talk about how Trora mapped growth opportunities in Latin America, the challenges involved in scaling authentication solutions, how to work intentionally to level the playing field for women in tech. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. Maite, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. Kind of set the stage here for everybody. Troar began by offering this background check solution for companies in Latin America, and you were the one that was owning the product strategy, right? Right, yeah. So I think we began around four years ago, and it was fully background checks back then, and now it's just a little bit more complicated. Yeah, that's how it usually happens, right? A product, I actually tweeted last night that like no business ever starts out and then ends up with their first plan ends up being the entire kind of execution of the business. Why don't you walk us through those first hundred days of the build and where did you start? Sure. So yeah, it's definitely grown and changed a lot since then. But I think our main focus on the first hundred days was there was an issue in Latin American companies at the time, especially if you're thinking marketplaces, gig economy, and so on, that they were growing faster than government services could sort of help them through, especially when you're thinking hiring a ton of people and personnel. So we started getting a lot into the topic or the problem of how do we help these companies hire their couriers or their riders faster. And that's how sort of the background check strategy began. And our main objective since day one was we'll build it initially for Colombia, but it needs to be scalable and faster uh, for other countries. So our second country was Mexico and Mexican. So it just sort of made sense. And it is the biggest Spanish speaking uh, market in LATAM. So it like made sense that, that way as well. And our 100 days of product build were definitely, we had two main customers and we were building exclusively for them. So we were listening to our issues, talking to them and wh- whatever they needed or required, we would go research, do and launch an MVP. I definitely remember this whole idea of the product I'm showing you today is going to be the worst one you're ever going to see. And it's just sort of that mentality that we had to launch fast and faster each time that we could, we had to be enemies of perfection that way. And then just keep launching and iterating and sort of going uh, with actual user feedback in order to improve. So our roadmap was initially Colombia mostly. There government services uh, regarding criminal records and legal records is easier. So it was just an easier product to build. And then we uh, tumbled into Mexico. (laughs) And it's just more complicated because legislation here is made uh, by state. So you had to have criminal records per state, legal records per state, and everything was just way more complicated in that way. 
it helped us definitely for our tech architecture to build everything with a really complicated country from the get-go, which I think we later appreciated. But at the beginning, it was just, we had two teams and they were struggling on the huge differences between one and the other. And it was definitely an API first product. I mean, we had a front end because we wanted to use it for sales. So we had this like for demos and to showing to clients, but every key functionality was API because we we're going towards big marketplaces. For the benefit of the audience, let's just double click on exactly the specific problem that Truro solves. I want to build on from there. Sure. So what we help companies do is hire people or use or get users faster. So the problem we're solving for them was I need to hire a driver for my driving company and I want to make sure they're not criminals. I want to make sure they had not committed any like big crimes in the past. Uh, and you would be surprised, but like things from murderers to being to being in a heist or a robbery uh, to more normal situations such as, you know, I have a traffic ticket. I should not be the one driving people around Mexico City sort of thing. So that's why we had to get a lot into government databases because we needed this data and it's just past behavior that's publicly available. And the reason our product was catchy or needed, it's because we did this in under two or three minutes, depending on the country, for every single user. So we sped up a process that used to be take days and people had to go in person to do, and we started doing it with tech. Got it. Would you say that you mentioned that it's more complicated in Mexico? Is complicated good? because it's harder to build and then you have defensibility or is complicated bad because it's hard to, to get a product out the door? So in this case, I would say complicated bad. We first thought it was complicated good, but uh, in retrospective, it's complicated bad because even at first we thought, you know, we'll tackle it with great tech. And we did have amazing engineers and we had great tech on it. But at the end of the day, there's some struggles that are always going to be there. So uh, if you're thinking any type of database, we had a database that it's so dirty and you are not able to clean because you're missing so many inputs. Even if you add the best AI on it, uh, the best tag uh, automations, if the data you're never able to get it as clean as you need to, uh, you're never going to be able to provide a product that brings as much value out as the ones in the other countries. So today, years later, we do have a great product for background checks in Mexico, but I can see the difference on the value add a Colombian uh, background check or Chilean or Brazilian background check brings to the customers, so to the companies, versus a Mexican one. And it's just something us and any other background check company struggle with. And I think that's honestly why we started sort of diverging from only doing background checks, because we kept seeing complicated countries where it was something that even with good relationships with governments and with good tech, was sort of not in our hands to fix. So that became like a little bit of a break there. Yeah, I think we say garbage in, garbage out, right? Exactly. And speaking of like kind of expanded roadmap and prioritizing a product roadmap is, is super challenging. I guess that historically in my last company, I was so narrow in my focus with Viva Real. And now you could look at Latitude and it's just like weird kind of a mix of a bunch of different things. Someone might say that we're unfocused in some respects, even though we have a master plan. So how do you balance kind of challenging what's next when you have so many good ideas as an entrepreneur? I love the word master plan, but I think it's definitely that. And I definitely empathize. It was super challenging when we started growing uh, and to bring some context into our prioritization issues. We were expanding in countries. So 
which country is more important to build next. So we had Chile, we had Brazil, we had Ecuador, Argentina, Costa Rica, like all of these other Latin American countries. But then we had, like that was growing our same products, so background checks across many countries. But then we wanted a more robust uh, solution to the problem that expanded not just to employees, but also towards the users. So who do I give a credit card to sort of thing? And that's when prioritization got super tricky. And our master plan as a company was every six months evaluated towards what's the market size towards our solution out there and the TAM, so the total addressable market. And this became a really North Star at some point because we realized that, for example, background checks did not bring as much potential revenue in the future as we thought. So the TAM was smaller than we needed to. So we had to be thinking on other verticals of products to build and to explore. So the way we were able to sort of make a more structured, structured product roadmap, we had to do different squats for different products. And no matter what pressure one team was having versus the other, we would not switch resources unless it was sort of a high-end product uh, CPO decision. So the way to think about this was I had a team that was focusing on background checks for Mexico, Colombia, and the other countries, let's say, and a team that was focusing on building the new products. There's always going to be a lot of tension from the ones that are growing the product that is currently bringing revenue, so background checks. But if I'm never focusing a team or a roadmap or a product manager on the next product or in the next ideas, they're never going to be built. They're never going to be priority. So we had to sort of divide and conquer. And it was so much fun. And it's still fun to date because we now have so many products and so many PMs. But it's honestly building sort of a Tetris and trying to figure out which one should get most value and for what. And I think any product manager out there with a lot of products sort of can think, empathize this. There's multiple techniques, but it definitely comes down to what's going to bring the company the most revenue in long term and then in short term. Sometimes, depending if you're racing around or if you're thinking on uh, winning one big customer, you prioritize for short term, but you always need to have someone thinking and prioritizing for the next five years uh, in order to build sort of a sustainable company. Uh, that's great. I think just kind of sharing one quick framework that I use in my last company in terms of geographic expansion, we would kind of simple kind of two by two McKinsey matrix of like yeah. size of the market, competitive landscape. And then we'd plot like, in our case, it was cities, Sao Paulo, Rio, Belo Horizonte, Salvador. And then we would kind of group the ones where we saw uh, the biggest opportunity where there was less kind of competitive dynamics. That's how we thought about it. And I and I wanted to kind of piggyback your statement on kind of the new products and like maturing products versus testing new things. At what point in the company, where do you make that shift where like you as, as the founder and someone spearheading product is really just driving the, the roadmap or you're letting the team kind of bubble up and decide where the focus is going to be? How is that done today? And how do you think that's maybe different from the first, call it, six months? This is great. So, yeah, first of all, prioritization matrices, I love them. McKinsey School, so I love them. And we've used many of them. But then thinking on how you let the team decide, (laughs) I was the only product manager, so I was leading product alone for the first eight to nine months. Uh, And we grew engineering a ton, but I was the only one doing product. 
uh, there was definitely a mistake on our part of not hiring faster, honestly. Um, but at first, it was really simple. There was 1 p.m., six engineering teams. I was also a founder, so I could sort of have this huge uh, upside on. I was talking to the biggest customers. I was directly affecting the roadmap. It was just super simple. Scaling that to having more team members was super hard. So when you're scaling to having multiple people make decisions, you do need to have sort of a system of you make decisions up till what? Up till what point? Up till what objective? So what we do now is uh, there's more senior PMs, let's call them. And what they do is they're able to define their roadmap up to a certain objective we want to reach as a company. This objective is defined by founders and sort of senior uh, teams. We do a, a whole brainstorming to bring a lot of people into it. And then the PM decides how he and his team are going to get there. And this brings them a ton of liberty on roadmap on whether it's a feature, a bug, a new country. They're able to define this based on am I hitting a metric and this metric makes sense to the founders. And the reason we wanted to give that flexibility was when you work in a B2B business such as us, there's certain customers that will definitely impact roadmap a lot and you cannot ignore them. I mean, it doesn't matter how big your company is. If one of the biggest banks of the region wants you to do something really specific for them uh, in order to use your product, you're going to say yes. I mean, you sort of have to, especially if you're trying to open more marketing in that country. So we have to give our PMs that flexibility of choosing when a customer can impact and change their roadmap or when maybe a risk of churn or a new market opportunity arises. Um, but what we do is every month, we all of the PMs sit down and we define roadmap and sort of review roadmap more than anything again. And then every 15 days, we only do it with sort of the product leads. So we're constantly, and we call this, we plan to iterate and change. So we have the perfect plan, the perfect roadmap, the perfect idea and strategy, and it changes constantly. And I think we're still in turn on that point of we're young enough that we don't want to be tied down by the decisions we made a month ago that may not be true with today's market. But we do have uh, some controls in place, so we're not changing every single day. So we try to balance that and there's there is a roadmap owner as a whole so if you want to change something really big that owner that has context of the main clients the main issues all of the roadmaps is the one that has to go give sort of the okay or the go ahead and that has uh, mostly worked for everything that we do that's core and managing we do have an outsider team that does experimentation and growth uh, for other things. But for product, there has to be sort of a head that knows all of the roadmaps together. How do you balance demands of a large corporate customer that maybe is going to write you a fat check versus scalable solutions that serve a huge swath of potential customers? Oof, I think that's always been our biggest struggle. And every B2B uh, PM that I've talked to, they're mostly in the same boat. We try not to build so specifically that we become a software factory. I mean, that's, I remember from day one, that's the worst thing that could happen to us. It's not die as a company, it's become a software factory. I mean, that has always been the mindset. So you also have to have great negotiators uh, in front of customers to be able to really, really understand their issues and their problems before uh, sort of 
agreeing on a solution. And so for us, our product managers, they negotiate a lot with the customer. They don't say yes to everything. And any sort of special thing on a contract, product has to approve. And it's especially because of this. Because if we sort of let our sales team uh, run along free, or even if we let all of the PMs run along free, uh, they would say yes without sort of coming up to the consequences that we would have to build that. So what we do now is we really, if we find something that we have to do for a specific customer that's really big, so it represents a big ticket, we try to build the solution or before we build it, we actually try to agree on the solution with them on a way that it can work for other customers as well. And we're super strict that we're not going to be building anything that sort of exclusive for a client. So if you want me to build a connection to your internal databases so you can connect our conversation, our KYC solutions uh, with more specific data that you have on your databases, we'll do that, but we'll do it in a way that we can connect any external API to our solution so all of the customers can sort of benefit from this feature. It's really hard because then you're building like really big things, uh, but it also brings us to really, really sit down with the client and talk through the problem, show them the solution plan, have them input, have them be a part of it. And they have to sort of be willing to test it with us as well. So honestly, it's the hardest thing we have to do. And when you have to say no to a really big customer, like we know what's on the line. And we do say no a lot. And it's just part of it. And trying to not make as many mistakes as you can on those decisions would be a big part. Yeah, probably easier once you've hit some kind of escape velocity and you're, you have a repeatable product, you have like a, a more diversified customer base. In the beginning, when it's you're in survival mode or you're just like in the early days and you need to get that revenue in the door and you've got the pressure of growth and, and all those things, that's when you kind of can probably succumb to some of those high pressures. But you don't want the tail wagging the dog, you know? Where, totally. Yeah. I remember the initial days. Uh, I would say the first nine months that we were, especially since we were opening multiple countries, any new customer per country, you know, whatever they said we would do, I mean, we needed them. They were opening a country for us. It was that important. And some of those customers today, so three years later, we're not saying yes to everything. And it's been a huge change in mentality and mindset for both them, but for our team as well. Like our team cannot believe that we're now saying no to some crazy requests because they were, they were so used to us saying yes to those customers. So you actually mature a ton of your, on, on your decisions and it goes both ways. Customers have to understand where they're standing on your roadmap. And you as a company have to decide which customers you're going to sort of say yes to on everything and which ones are going to have to be way more strict on your decision making. Now, these types of solutions you're building, they demand an enormous amount of data, right? From all these different sources, as you said, some higher quality data sources, some lower quality. But all this data has to be processed and has to be processed very fast, very precisely. What role does data have and how you scale? What are the challenges that come with that? How is data discussed and managed inside Trora? Oh, yeah. So data is our bread and butter, literally, where I would say uh, if you describe Trora in a really, really simple way, we give you insights on data that you should be able to get yourself. 
uh, you are not because one, it's hard to gather and then two, it's hard to clean. And the other thing that's important about the data we have is personal identifiable data. So it's regulated by so many uh, data government NANs uh, regulations worldwide. So we have to comply with GDPR. We had to comply with ISO regulations. We're, we're definitely handling users' most personal data. We handle their identity, their past, pictures of their ID. So anything that you can think of on any bad news situation about data, we have it. So more than how great or not we are data, we have to be super, super careful on how we store this data, how we handle it, how we encrypt it, and how we make sure that it's not crossed between customers, entities, and so on. So that has a huge role on what we play with. Actually, one of our biggest advantages was that since the beginning, we knew this was an issue. So all of our systems are built in a way that's encrypted per customer. Uh, we pass all of the sort of banking regulations and so on. And this is important because then you're able to work with them and operate with them. And then it has, when you think data, it has two sides, how we get the data. So we get a lot of the data from the end user, whether it's through our web app or through WhatsApp or through an API. We get your user data, we process it, and then we save it. Uh, we have to be able to delete it. Uh, we are only processing so the end user can have it. So our customer, the, the bank, the fintech, the marketplace, they are the ones that own the data. So it's a huge issue. Mm. What I would say is we've learned a lot along the way, and you have to have identifiers per user in our case. So am I identifying Maite because of her national ID that in Mexico is called the CURP? Or am I identifying her because of her cell phone uh, so I can sort of match everything that she's done? Am I identifying her based on her name? So we now sort of have different identifiers that help us connect users and we're able to cross-reference multiple sources. To give you a like high volume example, for a KYC, an onboarding use case, so Maite is opening a bank account uh, in one of the fintechs that Trora works with. I get from Maite her national ID pictures, uh, liveness authentication of herself, I get her uh, national ID number so I can cross-reference her in financial databases. I check her background. I check that she's not on any international blacklists. So I'm building a huge profile on Maite uh, that I send to the fintech. So all of this has to be perfectly stored and really easy to sort of look up and interconnect together. So that's what we help our customers do. We obviously authenticate along the way that Maite is not a criminal and that I'm giving you all of my actual IDs. But then at the same time, we're helping you store these data in your system. So as a fintech, you can grant her a better credit or so on. But yeah, saving data is an issue. Connecting data is an issue. And there's countries that are really, really complicated. There's others that are more simple. And at the end of the day, the one that has the data is the end user. So we had to become experts by necessity rather than by design at the beginning on talking to this user to get their initial data. So, yeah. You'd mentioned WhatsApp at some point. And uh, as a small anecdote, so just for full disclosure here, I'm, I'm an investor in Shora. And I, I got a, a message the other day. Uh, it was like a chat bot. And it was the investor update. 
And it was like, do you like to know this information? And then I like entered a few responses and then it would like prompt me and then it would share information on WhatsApp. I thought it was really a, an innovative way to like share because I get all these email updates, which like I have them sitting in my inbox. I can't go through all because I'm an investor in a lot of companies. And so I thought it was an innovative. And I know that your product is evolving with a heavy focus on, from what I understand, WhatsApp is like a huge core part of your focus now in terms of how you identity and everything else that you do in your business. And we all know if you're listening to this and you have any sense of Latin America, you know that's a hugely used medium, but it's really thought of more as a communication tool, not for authentication. So what's the potential here and how is it overlooked by other startups in Latin America? Where are the opportunities to use WhatsApp uh, beyond just like staying up on what's going on? Oof, yeah. So uh, yeah, the investor update was really fun, but it's definitely like that's the upside that startups are missing or companies as a whole, we all have a full inbox. <laughs> we all ignore SMS, but we still read information and sort of acquire information all day long, usually from social media. Whether your social media is LinkedIn or Instagram, it really doesn't matter. Uh, but the one we all use the most in Latin America is WhatsApp. And we don't think of it as a social media source because it's communicative. So you have to interact back. You talk to your friends, you talk to your grandma, you talk to everyone there. So that's the piece uh, that Latin America is starting to change on, not just startups, but banks and everyone else, because the users are in that channel. So the reason we launched our authentication services and our communication services in WhatsApp was because, as I mentioned, we were becoming experts on understanding the user. And we realized that I don't want to download an app that may give me a financial credit uh, after they ask me a ton of questions and they do a KYC. And then they may say, hey, Maite, now you, you, know, you have a pre-approved credit of whatever amount. But I would be willing to talk to someone, send them a few key pieces of my information in WhatsApp. I, it would be like a normal conversation. They would pre-approve it and then I would download their application or their app or whatever they were doing. So it became a way on connecting faster with users and getting a better response rate. And that's the piece businesses are missing. Your objective as a business is not to have downloads of your app or visits to your app. It's to have an active rate of your service. If your service is a financial credit, then it's to grant more credits and get them paid at the right amount of time and so on. It's not how many people open your app every single day. So that was sort of the gap we saw in the industry that we could really, really help companies benefit from. And since we're based on Latin mostly, even if our solution of WhatsApp conversations works, works worldwide, we were focusing on Latin because most of the users and the usage base on Latin, uh, all of them have WhatsApp. Not everybody has access to the best uh, data on their phone or space on their phone to have all of our applications. And we sort of see this as a way of how can we bring tech to everyone? How can we make sure that, you know, these awesome delivery services that we have or new financial ways of uh, saving money and investing that the normal, the normal and the base of the pyramid in Mexico or Colombia or Brazil, they can actually reach them. And it's not that they don't have internet or data in their phone. It's that WhatsApp brings them free data. <laughs> they don't require to download anything else. 
So it was finding that niche of people that wanted to talk to someone through WhatsApp or to a bot to get access to a service they couldn't before. And that's when it exploded. So this service of authenticating people through WhatsApp, we've tested it with, and I mean, we have our clients in multiple industries. If, if they're trying to reach sort of base of the pyramid, middle of the pyramid in Mexico, you're able to reach them. But if you want to reach someone like an investor, that's usually, you know, top end of the pyramid or whatever, they answer back as well. Because we're so busy with every other communication channel that if I get a notification on WhatsApp, I'm going to pay attention. So that's the mentality switch we want to, the mindset switch we want to do with our customers and with the users. The users are already there. We get a 40% better response rate on WhatsApp than any other of the channels that we reach users with, where the businesses are seeing that now and they're now sort of doing, not the migration, but opening up this new possibility of contacting and reaching leads and customers and users. Yeah, on WhatsApp, either I respond in 10 minutes or it's like two weeks, so. Yeah, or it's lost forever. But then <laughs> I can send your message two hours later of, hey, don't forget. Yeah, no, it, I got a question on WhatsApp for you. Quick poll here on WhatsApp. Audio messages, good or bad? They're kind of like cilantro. Either you hate it or you love it. So I love them, but businesses hate them. Uh, there's no, even if there's many new technologies of authenticating voice uh, or sort of pulling data from it, for businesses, it becomes that are really hard to process. And I, we actually have spoken to the WhatsApp team, so to the meta team. They're improving the insights they're getting from voice notes as a service, but it's not there yet. So businesses hate them. As a user, I love them, but businesses hate them today. Yeah. Even as a user, some people don't like them because they feel like it's rude to send an audio, but obviously I enjoy communication. I have a podcast. so And I think that capturing tone and flexion in your voice is something important that I see so many misunderstandings on. Oh yeah. Text. On text. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I think once the technology gets up there on getting the data out of the voice, it's going to make communication so simpler. Uh, but I think today it just becomes a little bit sort of lost in translation. So somebody has to listen to it today in order to get information and when you're thinking of analyzing all of your user conversations, text becomes simpler. Really. I know that female representation is a big topic for you. And that's, you know, a lot of decisions at Truer take that in consideration. Can you share in which ways and the impact that this had on your company uh, so far? Sure. So it's definitely been an, an objective for us to bring more females into tech. At first, we only focused it focused at thinking on engineers. So we wanted uh, software engineers that were female. Uh, this has always been a challenge. But later we realized that being in tech, being a female in tech doesn't mean being a software engineer in tech. You can be a product manager, you can be a recruiter, you can work for sales in tech. And the reason we want to sort of push more females into the industry, it's because we definitely see the upside on this, right? So we have a diverse customer base, we need a diverse team as well. And for us, then it also became, Trora has a really big mission on granting opportunity to people in general. So we started hiring students at the beginning, and now it just became through the same mindset of opportunity. We want to bring women the opportunity to have a better career, that one that is the fastest growing uh, in payments or in salaries in the world. We don't want to 
fit the disparity that's happening. So that's where we really focus on if I can teach a really crack female, uh, whatever background, <laughs> towards being a PM, towards working in tech, towards being a designer in tech, she's going to have a better fit future just because she has access to an industry that pays better salaries. So that's something we're really working on. It means when we hire, we at least ask the hiring manager to interview the same amount of candidates, uh, men and female. It, male and female. It doesn't matter anything else. Like hire the best one, but make sure you're finding bo both genders when you interview. So those types of things become really, really important. And we've created a culture that's really cool in Florida that they don't see, they don't, they're not affected by having females in leadership. So we have tons of female leaders and I think it's just really fun, but it's always based on work that you did. So it's meritocratic. It's, it's never like, oh, you know, we hired you for this role uh, just because you're a female. We don't like operating that way. Yeah, I think having a woman in leadership is really important. I'm lucky to have co-founder Gina. And there's just many times where like, women that we attract to the company that they're just inspired by her, right? They aspire to be like her in her career and how she's developed. It's good to have an example of someone else that maybe has a similar background to you or looks like you. So that's something that I think provides an advantage ultimately for companies because you appeal to a wider audience and you have richness of perspective. I think we advocate for also at Latitude. I want to shift gears here and, you know, you raised this $15 million Series A round I want to talk a little bit about the funding, what it unlocks, what's top of mind for you right now. And then I had a specific question about how do you budget as a startup? How do you, you've got $15 million. I've been part of large companies. My last company became a larger company where you had like strict budgeting cycles and you had to, but given that things are very unpredictable at the earlier stages of a company and things change so fast. So two part question plans with capital? What does this unlock for you? And then how do you go about managing that capital, making sure that you kind of get your best bang for your buck and that you manage your cash in a way that gets you kind of the next stage of growth? <laughs> Both great questions. The second one is tougher. Uh, the first one is a little bit easier. So the reason we raised the round was we were starting to see a lot of traction with WhatsApp onboarding, but we wanted to definitely be leaders in two markets. One was Mexico and the second one was Brazil. We're start focusing first on Mexico. And the only reason for this is Spanish speaking, our product is built on Spanish speaking. We do have it, everything in Portuguese, but it's not the same. And I'm Mexican. So I, this is like a personal challenge. Like we definitely want to grow throughout in Mexico uh, with our WhatsApp onboarding solution. And it's what we're doing. Uh, And we need a bigger market. So even if we're big in other countries, we will not be able to reach our targets of growth for the next year and, and the year after that if we're not in a really big market. So that's Mexico and Brazil for sure. And on the side on how we spend our money and how we manage uh, money in the bank, <laughs> we have a great culture at Trora uh, to our great determined sometimes that it's, We're always operating as if we don't have money. As, honestly, like we still have this mentality of the first days four years ago of startup where we had no cash in the bank. And we were super scrappy and super thoughtful of every dollar spent. I love that this mentality moves 
forward because then the team actually focuses on this a lot. When we're defining a new product solution or migrating a database, the cost of the database, of maintaining that database or the cost of the service that we're going to integrate is definitely part of the conversation. And it's a huge part of the conversation. So we're always focused on margins uh, versus other startups that at the beginning are not as focused on that. We've always been super focused on that. So on that end, I, we don't have to train anyone on that uh, mindset, which is awesome. But then we do have to spend the money. So how do we do it? Uh, we focus on burn a lot. So we review burn every month. And we are trying to optimize that the money we're spending is the most efficient. We're currently learning how to do more marketing and sort of awareness stuff to get more customers. And this is something you have to learn on the go. So today, sometimes we don't spend the money as efficiently as we could on our new crazy ideas on growth or marketing. That's for sure. But we try to keep ourselves honest on tracking that money spent. So, you know, if this month I put uh, $30 on Google Ads and the return was negative, <laughs> please don't put 50 next month, right? Like bring that down, iterate with less cash and then put more cash on it. So it's hard because when you're in a growth uh, stage that we really want to be at, it's use the money to grow faster and more efficiently, but don't waste the money. And control of money happens really big expense through the CEO. So we have to get the approval. That's a way of centralizing it and through the CFO. So he has to approve any crazy idea we have as well. We are really working towards having a better sort of cash optimization system. But for now, we, we're on that sweet spot where we have it. <laughs> we can use it, but we're so picky with it that we at least want to understand what we got out of it. And yeah, so managers have the decision-making piece there and they're usually coupled with a founder to sort of get that through and approved, I would say. If it has anything to do with sort of the growth strategy for Mexico or Brazil, it's easier to get approved versus if it has anything to do with expanding in Colombia, where we're already like market leaders, then we would not invest as much in that country. So we're sort of working towards the other end. I have one more question that just came to mind. How do you motivate the teams when some product teams are working on something that's like the shiny new object versus the good trusty one that pays the bills? It's super hard. So our good trusty product that pays the bills is still background checks to date. We spent two years building it. So it's by far the coolest product. And we have our best senior engineer on that product. And he's honestly awesome. Like he's, I would love to steal him for any other product, but it, but checks, it's his baby. Like it's, he's right there. Motivating those teams is really hard because you are not upgrading the product anymore. You're maintaining the product to the best of its standards because it does not require any additional features. So it's not a creative towards a growth mindset is a creative towards an optimization mindset. How can I maintain this awesome product with less bugs, with less maintenance, uh, with better filters for homonyms and international searches or whatever? I think a lot has to do with, uh, with communication. So we have a weekly all hands where we really try to bring down to the team how important it is to keep this going. <laughs> 
But we've definitely struggled with this because all every new customer, not every, but most of the new customers, were focusing towards the other solutions. So when you're trying to win a customer, everybody's talking about that customer, right? There's like, oh, we had a bug for X customer. We're trying to fix it. We're trying to build for them. We're trying to work for them. So it just becomes a really intense startup mindset for getting something out there. That's really hard to replicate with a product that's stable and paying the bills. We try to have honest conversations with them. We try to rotate the team as well. And we actually have a premium. I think at some point we paid a premium for maintenance. I think I'm, I'm not super sure. It really helps that our best engineering is working on that team. So if you want to learn a lot and you want to work with him, uh, you're working on that team. But it's, it's hard. For sure. I guess that's a good incentive, right? If you if you have someone who's like really senior engineer that because I mean younger engineers that have less experience, they want to be paired with people that are inspiring and that have built amazing things and, and are really knowledgeable. And so that's one way to attract people to that product and ensure that people will stick around to to develop their skills. Yeah, it's like that's the way I see it. And I think that's the way we see it. And honestly, always putting the best team we need to for that specific problem. So we and, try and, to balance it. And is Brazil is part of the game plan and, and you're currently active there or is that something on the roadmap? So we are active in Brazil, but we're no, not intensively trying to expand in Brazil. So our biggest product in Brazil today is our electronic signature and it's run under a sub team. So they were an, uh, an acquisition we made last year and they're amazing. They're based mostly in Brazil and they target a smaller base. So they're more really small enterprise, smaller than SME targeted. To grow towards bigger enterprises, we're holding on that plan while we grow on bigger enterprises in Mexico first. Got it. I think it's just, we have not duplicated many things yet. So we're big enterprise folks on Mexico and then small enterprise folks on Brazil. And we hope to sort of switch learnings from one to the other eventually. Well, um, shameless plug for uh, the Vamos Latam Summit that's going to happen in Sao Paulo in September. September Ooh, yes. 25th. Everybody's talking about that, I have to admit. Like, I've gone to a ton of other dinners and I'm like, we're all going to Sao Paulo. So, yeah. Yeah. So, that's going to be a great one. I'm happy to host you out there as well if, if that makes sense for you. And then uh, before too long, we can definitely partner on the Mexico one, which, which will be in Q1 of next year. And Ooh. so, we'll be having the Vamos Latam Ciudad de Mexico version. And so, uh, yeah, excited to uh, congrats on the business. Glad I've had you on now. Daniel was on the podcast before. And so it's great to hear from you (laughs) and hear about your products, opportunities, challenges, and things that you've learned taking Trora from this small little startup with an idea that is focused on one thing into offering a multitude of products, leveraging uh, WhatsApp in a really unique way as part of the innovation that you brought to the table and so congrats on, and I'm happy to be a supporter and investor in, in your company and excited to see where it goes. Thanks, Brian. Uh, this has been great. And we definitely uh, will partner and work on the Mexico Forum. Um, I'm looking for more entrepreneurs in Mexico. This is a really fun thing now. So yeah, no, we're really excited about what we've built so far, honestly. And I think it's really exciting that we get to see how many startups grow because they, they start using our system to iterate things. So they use WhatsApp to test their crazy ideas just because it's no code. So like that's a really, like the best part of this new product line is that we actually get to work with a lot of startups. So it's been really fun. Thanks for having me again. And 
Uh, yeah, sure. we'll be working together. I'm sure we can get together in person sometime because, uh, you know, now that I'm in Mexico City and you're here too, who knows how- We, we should, we, we should. We could be like five buildings away and we don't even know. Um, <laughs> we definitely could but, be. Uh, but listen, uh, I'll probably start hosting maybe some founder dinners, uh, dinner series. So if I start doing that, I'll be sure to let you know and, and we'll meet in person. Please let me know, yeah. And if you need anything, like I'm a Mexico City native, so happy to help. Gracias. <laughs> tus contactos y tu conocimiento entonces un gran abrazo y, y vamos la thumb great love it thanks okay, man chao chao bye bye thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Maite Muniz be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors like her I'm your host Brian Reckworth vamos la thumb See you next week.